Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Please open your Bibles now to the book of Genesis. We're going to be looking at chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. There's a paperback Bible underneath one of the chairs in front of you, so um, you can find that. Turn to page 6. Yes, Up Children's Church. Sorry. Thank you, Ashley. Um, Parents, you may dismiss children for Children's Church. Um, See Ashley there at the back center door. Thank you, Ashley. So we are continuing through a series here at New Life called The Life of Abraham. And uh, last week we left Abram in kind of a tight spot. Uh, He had just been admonished, rebuked by Pharaoh for his deceit and selfishness, ordered to leave Egypt. And so with his tail between his legs, off he went in silence back to the promised land. And it was just a real low point for Abram. And as we get ready this week, we might be wondering, is there a possibility for a comeback here? Can Abram have a comeback? I think everybody likes a comeback, don't they? Um, I'm a big Indianapolis Colts fan, very excited about the football season starting here pretty soon. I remember back in uh, December 2018, when the Colts played the Jacksonville Jaguars, and the Jaguars had lost seven straight games. They didn't have their starting quarterback, and they didn't have their starting running back, and they beat the Colts six to zero. Uh, Just that score tells you everything about that game. Colts were shut out, they were humiliated. Uh, It was one of the most painful games to watch for me as a Colts fan, and so, Everybody was wondering, are the Colts going to come back? Well, you know what? The next week, they played the Houston Texans, who were on a nine-game winning streak. And Andrew Luck came out and threw for 400 yards, and the Colts won 24-21, to just one week later. It was a tremendous comeback. And uh, that's one of the beautiful things about sports, actually, is in sports, we get to see comebacks. But you know what? Even in the Bible, we get to see comebacks. They're not just sports comebacks, there are spiritual comebacks, and we see them frequently in the Scriptures, and we learn from this that failure is not final for the Christian, that the Bible is a book of second chances, and even third chances, and fourth chances, and fifth chances, and that when we worship a God of mercy, there is always an opportunity for a fresh start. And Abram turns out to be a tremendous example of that very fact Today And so we're going to think this morning about Abram's comeback here from Genesis 13. So here's just a very brief review where we've been so far in this sermon series. Chapter 12, 1 through 9, God comes to Abram. He calls Abram. He makes a promise to Abram. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make a great nation from you. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed through you. Abram responds believing. He responds in obedience. He, he witnesses to others in the land. It's just a tremendous success for Abram. But then... The next verses in 10 through 20, chapter 12, which we covered last week, we see a very disappointing performance, so to speak, from Abram. He gets overcome with fear and deceit. He ruins everything, and it requires God to step in, to intervene in sending 
plagues that will reunite Abram and Sarai and get them out of Egypt and back into the promised land where they belong. And so that's where we left Abram last week, and now this week. Can Abram have a comeback? So let's see what happens. Let's stand if you're able, and we're going to read this entire chapter, Genesis 13, 1 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot, set, <coughs> excuse me, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Lord God, please, by your Spirit, open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word, in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> so, Genesis 13. One of the questions that uh, this introduction might raise for all of us is, is there a possibility uh, for a comeback for you and for me? Perhaps some of you are here today feeling distanced from the Lord, feeling a little off track spiritually, feeling like you're wandering from the Lord. Maybe you feel humiliated before God today in the same way that perhaps Abram did. Well, how do we come back? What do we do? Is it possible? And the answer is yes. And so I think from this text, we're going to get three things that show us how to come back. And so the first point is very simple. It's just simply this. If you're looking to come back to the Lord, return to Him. Return to the Lord. 
Now let me show you how this comes out of the text, what that actually means. After Pharaoh's rebuke and admonishment of Abram, we see here in verse 1 that he's headed back up from Egypt, back into the promised land. He's taking his family with him. It's he and his wife, and Lot, his nephew, is going along with him as well. He's taking all that he had. Um, we learned in verse 16 all that Pharaoh had given to Abram. He got uh, quite a bit of wealth, donkeys, servants, uh, camels, oxen, sheep, everything that he had was going with him back into the promised land. And, of course, Sarai there is with him, so we realize that Sarai has been released from Pharaoh's harem. We imagine that that was probably a, a tense ride back between Abram and Sarah. Uh, any of you married people know what it's like when you're in a fight with your spouse and you're stuck in a car together and uh, you've got to work things out. You can imagine. Here are um, Abram and Sarai. They've got a long trip back. There's uh, a lot of stories to tell, a lot of things to work out. But in any case, what we have here is uh, Abram being enriched, it says. Um, he is very rich, according to verse 2. So, uh, you know, he kind of makes out of Egypt ahead in some senses. He's got all this wealth, and so he's reunited with Sarai, and it would seem that, you know, things are starting to come back together, but we see, according to what Abram does next, that he has a very specific intention in mind when he gets back to the promised land. So, look what happens here in verse Three, he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. Now, this should take us back to verse 8 of chapter 12. You might remember that when Abram was coming into the promised land at God's command, it says in 12.8 that he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east, and there he built an altar. And so as Abram and Sarai are coming back into the promised land, it's like Abram's got in his heart and in his mind, I know where I'm going, I know what I have to do, I'm going back to that altar. I'm going back to that place that I built where I could have an encounter with God. And that's exactly what it says in the end of verse 3 and 4. It says his tent that he had at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first He's going back to a place where he can encounter God. And what does he do at the end of verse 4? He calls upon the name of the Lord. We have a couple of phrases here. The place where he had made an altar at the first. Uh, back in verse uh, 3, the, where he had been at the beginning. What Abram seems to be doing here is going back to the beginning. Going back to the basics. Going back to the ABCs of his faith. He knows before he does anything else, he's got to do business with God. He's wandered away from the Lord. He's been humiliated before the world. And in Abram's mind, he's like, the first thing I'm going to do is go to that altar, and I'm going to get on my knees, and I'm going to confess my sins. I'm going to acknowledge my errors. I'm going to lay down my transgressions. I'm going to call out for mercy. I'm going to recalibrate my heart. I'm going to reacquaint myself with the promises of God. That's his intent. He's got to do business with God because he's wandered away. This is what it is to return to the Lord. It's not 
I'm going to get more involved in the church. I'm going to read more books. I'm going to help the poor more. I mean, those are all good things. But if you've wandered from the Lord, the first thing you need to do today when you get home is go into your room, shut the door, get on your knees, and call out for mercy to God. That's the first step in returning to the Lord. The promise in the Scriptures are very clear. Here's Isaiah 55. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Sometimes the word that is used for kind of drifting from God is called a backsliding. I don't think it's a biblical word, I don't think, but it's a word that is used frequently for those who drift away. It's a very frequent thing for Christians to do from time to time. You know the story of David, right? David falls into adultery with uh, Bathsheba. Uh, I think David was a believer before then. He backslid, and God in His grace sent Nathan to him to confront him from his sin, confront him with his sin, and David returned to the Lord. And the promise is whenever you return, there's always going to be mercy for you. So I know it's very frequent, it's very easy for people to just stray. It's very easy for that to happen to young people, you know, college age, high school people. So I'm so happy there's a college age ministry going on here. That's about the age where people have been brought up in the church. They start to stray, they start to experiment, they start to think maybe there's a different way to live. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've strayed. Maybe you've never come back. Today, go back to the Lord. Return to Him. There's a wonderful story in the biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a <clears throat> British preacher in the 1900s. Ian Murray has written this wonderful account of Lloyd-Jones's life. Lloyd-Jones, great leader, great preacher. And um, in the biography, there's this story of a man who's a very troubled man who was part of Lloyd-Jones's church, and he had just wrecked his life. He destroyed his family. Um, <clears throat> He lost his family, and then he got remarried again, and then that wife left him, and he was all alone. He was entirely destitute, living in the city of London, and this man decided that he would go to the Thames River, get up on the bridge, and jump off and kill himself. So he goes to the bridge, and he's standing there. He's about ready to jump in, and then he hears Big Ben, you know, the big clock in London. He hears Big Ben strike at the top of the hour, and it reminded him that, oh, this is when public worship starts. So obviously this is Sunday morning. And he had been at Lloyd-Jones' church, and so he thought to himself, I'm just going to go back and hear Lloyd-Jones preach one last time before I end it all. And so he takes the six-minute walk down the road. He gets to Lloyd-Jones' church. <clears throat> he starts to walk up the steps, and Lloyd-Jones is in the middle of the pastoral prayer at the time. And the first thing the guy hears as he's walking up the steps is Lloyd-Jones saying, God have mercy on the backslider. And that's all he needed to hear. There is a merciful God who welcomes the backslider back. He was brought back to faith. He came in, he worshiped, and he was faithful to Jesus for the rest of his life. There is mercy for the backslider. God will show mercy to you if you return to him. He showed mercy to that man. He showed mercy to Abram. He'll show mercy to you. Octavius Winslow, a Puritan, says this, merciful to receive you, merciful to pardon you, merciful to heal you. Oh, the boundless mercy of God in Christ. 
towards a soul returning from its wanderings. Will not this draw you? Will this not draw you to return to Jesus? So that's the first step in Abram's comeback. He gets back to the promised land, goes to the altar, gets right with God. But the second thing we see that is an element here of Abram's comeback is reconciling with others. Um, That's a big portion of this text showing how Abram is reconciling or we might say making peace with others. Now, I told you last week and we learned that um, a faithful life to God does not guarantee an easy life. Do you remember that? Faithfulness to God does not guarantee an easy life. Often we're faithful to God and we're overcome with trials and crises. That's what happened to Abram. He was faithful in 12, 1 through 9. Then verse 10, there's a famine. So there was a a natural disaster, we might say. Um, But, you know, when it rains, it pours sometimes. The, The crises and the trials, they don't end. And so now what Abram faces is not a natural test or trial or crisis, but an interpersonal problem which can sometimes be harder to deal with than even natural crises, right? There's tension here between Abram and Lot. And really the reason why is because they've got too much stuff. (laughs) That's the problem. Uh, Look what it says in verses 5 and 6. Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife. There it is at the beginning of verse 7. There's strife. They're not getting along. They're getting irritated with each other. There's, there's tensions in this relationship. And just as an aside note, realize here that this tension is happening in the midst of prosperity, not adversity. Remember verse 2? He's got silver and gold. He's very rich, Abram. Lot's got a lot of stuff too. You know, sometimes we think if I can just get more wealth and more things, then my life will be great and all my problems will be fixed. Well, sometimes you get a lot of wealth and it creates new problems. Having a lot of wealth, having a lot of things doesn't guarantee good personal relationships, does it? And sometimes it's those personal relationships that are the hardest things for us to deal with no matter how much money we have. Now, of course, Money is good. We should pursue well to support ourselves, our families, and our church. Yes, but don't count on money to solve all your problems. Sometimes it creates new problems, and that's what's going on here. They got all this wealth, and now there's strife. So you can imagine maybe what this would have been like. Um, You know, lots of herdsmen come down with all their livestock to the watering hole, and, well, Abram's men, they're already there, and they're taking up all the room. They're hogging all the, the water. And so Lot's men say, you know, hey, we called this place first. And Abram's men say, we got here first. And Lot's men say, well, what are we supposed to do? And Abram's men say, well, go down to that watering hole. And Lot's men say, "Um, well, that place is dry. And so Abram's men say, well, that's your problem. And back and forth they go with an argument. And on top of that, we see that the Canaanites and the Perizzites are in the land at the end of verse 7. And so the reason that's significant is because these are the people who were there before Abram and Lot got there. And so they probably own a big part of the land and a lot of the watering holes. And so 
Not only are they having trouble getting along with each other, Abram and Lot, but they've got to deal with the Canaanites and the Perizzites as well. So it's a tense situation. There's personal, interpersonal strife. Now, as the story unfolds here, we get to see a tremendous contrast between these two men, Abram and Lot. And so the first thing we see is Abram's grace. So this is part of his comeback. He's returned to the Lord. He's done business with the Lord. He's received grace and forgiveness from God. And now we see the evidence of that spilling out from his heart. And Abram reaches out to Lot in grace. Look at verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Abram's taken the initiative. Notice, he's not looking the other way, hoping that the problem goes away. He takes the initiative, and he shares his heart, which is, I don't want to be at odds with you, Lot. I don't want there to be tension. I don't want there to be strife. I want there to be peace. Remember when Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Abram is a peacemaker here. He is reaching out in grace, seeking reconciliation with his nephew Lot. And here's how he does it. Verse 9, he says to Lot, Lot, is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. If you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Now, that is just an unbelievably gracious, kind, and generous gesture on Abram's part. Remember, Abram is the older guy here. He's Lot's uncle. Abram's the guy who received the promises from God. He's kind of the, the chosen one. And quite frankly, the wealth that Lot has is probably just handed down to him from Abram. I mean, Lot's just kind of along for the ride here. Friends. He wasn't even mentioned in chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. All the wealth, the sheep and the livestock from Pharaoh were given directly to Abram, probably then passed down to Lot. And so Abram very well could have said it would have been entirely in his rights for him to say to Lot, Lot, I'm going to take what I want and you get what's left over. And instead, he says the exact opposite. Lot, you take what you want and I'll take whatever is left over. I have a right to the whole place, but I'm going to let you take what you want, and I'm just going to take what you leave for me. I mean, talk about an act of humility. Talk about an act of refusing to take up your rights. In the interest of peace, in the interest of reconciliation, Abram defers. He humbles himself refuses to take up his rights. A guy named Alexander McLaren says, the less of our energies that are consumed in asserting ourselves and scrambling for our rights so as to get the best places for ourselves, the more we will have to spare for better things. Probably should say, and the more we leave to God to order our ways, and the more shall our souls be wrapped in perfect peace. I mean, it's true, there are certain times when you have to assert your rights. Those times come. There is a time to call the police. <laughs> there is a time to call a lawyer. I mean, yeah, those, those times come. But friends, more often than not, 
the reason that strife continues in personal relationships, the reason that peace is not achieved is because one person or the other simply will not give up his rights. Just demands to get what he or she deserves. And you know, that could be the answer to whatever strife or personal relationship that you might be involved in right now that might be troubled with your spouse, with a brother or sister, with a roommate, with a coworker. Maybe you just need to lay down your rights. This is what pleases God. God loves a peacemaker. Look what the scriptures say. James 3, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So much wisdom in that last verse. So far as it depends upon you, you might have done all that you can do to be at peace with somebody. You know, sometimes you just get to the point where there's just nothing else I can do. And so at that point, your conscience is clear. As far as it depends on you, you might be attempting to live at peace with someone who will not live at peace with you. Well, you can't control that in the other person. And so I think you're, you're, you're free then to have a clear conscience. But the question is, have you done everything so far as it depends upon you to reconcile and be at peace? This is what Abram is doing. I mean, in his grace, he is just humbling himself and laying it down. And we just see this is just a natural consequence of someone who has returned to the Lord. When, when your relationship with the Lord is right, your heart overflows with grace toward others. And if your heart is not responding in grace toward others, it could be because you might not be right with the Lord. So Abram reconciles with others. So, but there's a contrast here. So that's Abram, all right? Comeback, right? I mean, he's, he's doing pretty well right now. Um, but Lot, not so much. And what we see in contrast is Lot's greed. So <clears throat> Abram offers up this tremendous offer to, to Lot. Take whatever land that you want. Now, you know, Lot certainly could have said, oh, no, 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 my father Abra Abraham, um, you know, I don't deserve this. You take what you want. He could have said that. But instead, <clears throat> look at verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes, and he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere. It was like the garden of the Lord. It was like the garden of Eden. It was like Egypt. It was a, a fertile, luxurious, well-watered, prosperous place. He lifts up his eyes. His heart is filled with with desire for all of this stuff. And in verse 11, he says, I'll take it. <laughs> he chose for himself, for himself, it says, all of the Jordan Valley. And he goes to the east, Abram goes to the west, and they separate from each other. Lot here, driven by greed and all that he sees. Abram deferred to him. No way Lot's going to defer to Abram. He's going to take everything that he can get. Now, we might say, you know, can we really blame Lot um, after all the land was offered to him? I mean, is this really a negative thing? Is this really a, a sinful thing that Lot has done? But there are other clues in this text to suggest that what Lot is doing is not pleasing to the Lord. Um, look at verse 10. And you'll see that little parenthetical phrase at the end of verse 10. 
as it's talking about Lot, lifting up his eyes, and then at the very end it says, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, that, that ought to get your ears tuned in. What? Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed? Now, of course, I think most of you probably know that, but if you're reading this for the first time, you don't know that. It's like, what, what, what? Why would God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? There's like, this is foreshadowing. Uh, the writer, Moses, is getting us ready. Something's not right about Sodom and Gomorrah. And so later on, we see verse 13. The men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So this is a bad place, but back up to verse 12, and you'll see what Lot has done as he takes the land, settles in the land, among the cities in the valley. Look at the end of verse 12. He moved his tent as far as Sodom. So there's something in Lot's heart. He's, his, his mind isn't on the promised land. His mind isn't on what God has promised. He's not thinking about eternal things. He's not thinking about his soul. He's not thinking about spiritual things. He's thinking about getting whatever he can right now, and he's inching his way to the most wicked city in the world. Now, he's not in Sodom yet, is he? As far as Sodom. He's getting close, and maybe he reasoned to himself, well, I'm not close to Sodom, but there's no way I'm going to wind up there. I just like the land here. I just like the, the, the water and the beauty here. But there he is, just a little bit away from Sodom. Well, you know what? When we get to chapter 19, verse 1, we're going to read that Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. He inched his way there, and before long, he got brought into that place and was sitting there at the city gate. This is the way it happens, friends. We don't just find ourselves living in Sodom. We don't just find ourselves committing great acts of wickedness immediately. It, it doesn't happen that way. It's bit by bit. It's step by step. From our greed, we see things that we want, and we start marching in a bad direction, and we convinced ourselves, well, we'll never get that far. But you start heading in that direction. You're a lot closer to that than you were, and very often we wind up in a place that we wish we had never been. That seems to be what's happening to lot. And it can happen to us too. You know, we just not praying quite as much as we used to, not reading our Bible quite as much as we used to, not going to church quite as much as we used to, not fellowshipping with Christians quite as much as we used to. It's just tiny little steps. But there's a warning here. Be careful, or you might find yourself sitting in the gates of Sodom. So here's uh, Jesus' warning, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? That's what Lot is toying with here. But it's a bit of an aside. The point here is that Abram in his grace has sought reconciliation with Lot. The third thing we see that is a, a big part of Abram's comeback is not just that he returned to the Lord, not just that he reconciled with Lot and his herdsmen, but that he remembered the promises. So that's an important part of any kind of comeback, is to fix our heart and mind on the promises of the gospel and believe them. So here's what happens. Notice here that God did not speak to Abram in verses 10 through 20 during Abram's disappointing performance last week. We, we never heard from God. Um, God did speak to Abram in verses 1 through 9, and now he speaks to Abram again. And what God does is he reminds Abram of the promises. Look at verse 14. <clears throat> the Lord said, the Lord speaks. He says to Abram after Lot had separated from him. 
He says this, lift up your eyes. Now, isn't that interesting? It's the same thing that um, was said about Lot in verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley. So then God says to Abram, I don't know if he's mocking Lot here, I don't know, but lift up your eyes, Abram, and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. So there's a promise of the land that God is making here. This is the first thing, the first promise, God's promise of the land. And it's almost like um, God knowing the way Abram acted with Lot, it's almost like God is saying, okay, Abram, you were willing to take whatever was left over with Lot. Uh, How about now I just give you everything? How about I just give you all of the land? That's, that's what God is doing here. He's saying, you're my chosen one, Abram. I'm filled with loving kindness to you, and I am reasserting this promise that you're getting all the earth. And in fact, in verse 17, he says, go ahead, Abram, walk through the land, the breadth of the land. You know, take a test drive, in other words. Uh, just go walk through this place and check it all out and look at all of the beauty here and the mountains and the trees and the valleys and the water God just wants him to see every bit of it, and he reasserts his promise, you're going to get it all. I'm going to give it all to you. Now, the application today, I mean, that sounds like a great promise, doesn't it? I mean, that he would get all that land, and um, the promise for you and me actually is, is a lot greater. The promise to you and me as Christians today is, is much more. God has promised us much more than just a small parcel of land in the Middle East called the nation of Israel. Do you know that to all Christians, the promise is the new heavens and the new earth? And God says to you and me, I'm giving you all of it. The meek will inherit the earth. Isn't that what Jesus says? Peter says, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth, a home of righteousness, That's what we stand to inherit. That's the inheritance for all Christians one day when Jesus comes again and Jesus comes back to earth and establishes his new Jerusalem and all of his people dwell on the whole globe for all eternity. And so what a wonderful promise this is, God's promise of the land. But then the second thing we see is God promises people. He promises descendants. Look at verse 16. The second promise, he says, Abram, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. So now God is saying, Abram, you're going to have so many descendants, so many people are going to come from you one day that they're going to be so spread out throughout the world. There's going to be so many of them. There's going to be such a multitude of people that have come from you that it's going to be harder to count them than it is to count the number of dust particles that exist in the earth. I mean, whatever we take from this promise, I think we can all agree that what God is saying here is that the descendants of Abraham are going to be an enormous, huge group of people. And this is hard for Abram to believe, right? Because we know what's hanging over his head, the fact that he's 75 years old, the fact that Sarai, his wife, is barren. So now we still have that to deal with. (laughs) 
Abram's called on to believe the promises, and they, they seem kind of hard to believe. That's true. And so we'll have to see, how is God going to do this? It's going to require a miracle, and a miracle is going to happen, and we're going to see that as we continue going through this story. But it might seem hard for you and me to believe too. Really? The descendants of Abraham are going to be like as, as many as the dust of the earth, as many as the stars in the sky? Is that really going to happen? Because you look out throughout the world today, it certainly doesn't seem like Christians are the majority in the world, does it? As Christians, we're a pretty small percentage of the entire population. But here's the promise, as much as the dust of the earth. The way to understand this, friends, is to think about uh, the way this is fulfilled. Because Paul says in Galatians 3, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The fulfillment of this promise is in the evangelizing of the world and the proclamation of the gospel to all four corners of the earth, calling people to faith in Jesus Christ. It's the church, it's believers in Jesus who are the fulfillment of this passage. And our task as a church is to fulfill this, to work on this. It's true, no, the majority of the population are not Christians today, but this promise is not fully fulfilled yet. It's still in process. God's still doing it through people like you and me, through the church. We send out missionaries. We share the gospel with the hope and the expectation and the confidence that God's going to fulfill this promise, that more and more people will become Christians, that more and more people will bow the knee to Jesus, that the church will grow. The gates of hell will not prevail against his church. So just like Abram was called to believe in the promise of God, so you and I are also. Do you believe that? Can you look to the future with hope that the gospel is going to succeed and the kingdom is going to grow? This guy named Thomas Goodwin says this, There will come a time when the generality of mankind, both Jew and Gentile, shall come to Jesus Christ. He has had but little taking of the world yet, but he will have before he is done. Jesus is not done. <laughs> And who knows how long this is going to take, but the promise is a multitude of people coming to believe in Jesus. Do we believe that? Does our approach to missions and evangelism suggest that we believe that? Do we have hope in the success of the gospel? I think the Lord would want us to believe what He says. So, Abram's comeback is encouraging, isn't it? He, he, Abram's back, everybody. <laughs> but... Uh, don't get your hopes too much into Abram because it's not going to last. <laughs> and we're going to get to chapter 16, and we're going to see another disappointment. Um, but isn't Abram just like you and me? Again, we're all up and down. <laughs> we're up one day, we're down the next. But thankfully, there's someone besides Abram for us to hope in. There is a Savior named Jesus Christ who will not disappoint. There is a Savior named Jesus who has done it all right. Everything he does, he does well. He's obeyed every place you haven't obeyed. He's done it right everywhere you've done it wrong. He's going to fix everything that we've messed up. And just as Abram said, you know, I'm going to give up the land for you, Lot. Jesus comes into this earth and says, I'm giving up my life for you. I'm giving up my rights for you. Philippians 2 says this. Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't assert his rights, you might say. 
But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Our hope is not in Abram, but Abram does remind us of Jesus. And he is a great and mighty Savior who will accomplish all that he intends in gathering his people to himself. Thank you, Lord, so much for the encouragement and hope that we find in your word. Uh, Lord, thank you for giving us an example in Abram, but thank you more than that for giving us a Savior in Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.